and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Okay, although not what we're used to in our style of verse-by-verse preaching the last few weeks, I've loved this series on the Bent Tree Discipleship Pathway to understand how we grow uh, in this uh, into our overall health as a church. Because it's a healthy church, a mature church body of believers at the local church that God uses to change the world. I firmly believe that. I think it's our job, don't you? I mean, God intends to use us the folks of the church, the people of the church, to bring the lost into the kingdom by the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit living us uh, in our lives, how we live. Well, if you've missed any of the first three weeks of the series, go pick that up wherever you get podcasts or even YouTube. Hey, share that stuff online. Uh, I realize for some of you, it might get you in trouble as they listen, but share that stuff online. Uh, We've looked at the Bent Tree Discipleship Pathway the last few weeks. And next week, we'll dive deeper into how we can use that tool in our overall lives. And last week, we asked the important question. Do you remember? What is the level of my own spiritual maturity in Christ Jesus? If the discipleship pathway is that overall map of faith that we have, of understanding our spiritual maturity tells us the ability that we have to travel that pathway. Now next week, we'll look at other tools we can use to both grow ourselves in the maturity of this. We'll kind of wrap this all together, what we've been talking about. But from D3 groups, group leaders to the shepherding elders that were just here that are oversee our church family and our staff, we all are committed to help our church grow into full spiritual maturity. The group of believers God intended us to be. Make no mistake, that always starts with each and every individual, no one left behind. But before we get to more of the process and the tools we can use to grow spiritually, I want us to take a look at something that Jesus warns us about if we're going to follow him as a disciple. As we begin thinking through our plans to journey up this discipleship pathway, how are we going to prepare to travel up these mountains, this pathway? There is a danger I want to warn you about. It's a serious danger that will mess up your life. You could get the wrong idea if you get this wrong idea about what we have been describing as this discipleship pathway. Let me see if I can explain. Discipleship or following Jesus is not just some abstract system or a checklist of things you do before you die. Although we can give you best practices, and we will, as you journey up that, that highway, those tools, those best practices, those techniques, listen to me, won't in themselves grow you into the creation God has called you to be. Let me see if I can explain it as plainly as possible. It takes the Holy Spirit of God living and active in each believer to help them grow and follow Jesus. 
And the reason for that is this discipleship pathway that we, we walk towards spiritual maturity even beyond that, it hurts. What I mean is the new thing that we find out or the thing that we find out in the New Testament is that when Christians follow Jesus, they, well, there's no other word for it. They suffer. Now, we'll get to what that means more, and I don't want to panic you. But the truth is, following Jesus is difficult, it's hard, and it's joyous and full of love and peace. It's sweet, it's great, but make no mistake, it's difficult. But it's the difficulty we actually face and the ups and downs, the struggles, and yes, even the suffering of this life, God actually uses that stuff, that suffering, to mold and shape us, to grow us. Kind of like spiritual exercise, spiritual barbells to, to grow us up. They are, they are no surprise to God when they happen to us. He allows the suffering. Now think through this with me. When a person is saved from their sin, given the righteousness of Jesus. Are you with me? I mean, when a person becomes a Christian who was dead spiritually before and is made alive in Christ Jesus, who has been born again in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. When that saved person believes in Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord, they are justified before God. Someone should say amen on that. What we mean is that person has been declared righteous before a holy God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus himself, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Say amen to that. That's important. Jesus, in his humanity, was inherently righteous. He was inherently holy, right? But our righteousness is foreign to us. Because it has been given to us by Jesus, through Jesus. What we mean is that the righteousness of Christ is credited into our own account. God the Father, he no longer sees or holds our sin, past, present, future sin. He doesn't see that or hold it against us because we are a believer. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has become our Savior. It's vitally important that we understand what that means, though. Our sins, past, present, future, are credited to Jesus' account, and his righteousness is then credited to our account. This is what we call the great exchange. Then God punishes our sin in Jesus as our substitute on the cross. This is the gospel. Now, make no mistake about it. Every sin, every sin ever committed by humanity will suffer God's justice. The wrath of God, every sin will be paid for, either in the person of Jesus on the cross or in the person of every unbeliever in hell for all eternity. No sin goes by. Now, when a person realizes Jesus is the Son of God, trusts Him as their Savior, that's the mechanism of being saved, it's that time of realization that Jesus is the Son of God. We go, woo, I understand. We call that then conversion, don't we? Repentance. What we mean is that we've been made alive in our faith. 
we've placed our faith in Jesus, we've repented of our sins, then we follow through with following Jesus. We get baptized. We begin uh, to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. Little uh, little uh, commercial here, by the way. We have baptism next week. You want to get baptized? Let us know. Scan that little thing in front of you. Maybe you just realize that Jesus is the Messiah and you're saved. You believe. Get baptized. Follow him as Lord. Now, you often hear me say a term and refer to Jesus as Jesus as our Savior and what? Lord. Lord. It's that second thing of when we call Jesus Lord I want to talk to you about with discipleship. When we talk about discipleship or, or following after Jesus up this highway here, it's not an abstract system or doctrinal system or checklist you do for Jesus before you die. That's not it. Here's the warning. The cost of discipleship. What is the cost? Or, 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 and are you willing to pay the cost? That's what we're going to talk about. Here's the thing I want us to do today. Each day we must weigh the cost of following Jesus. Write this down. Christians must weigh the cost of following Jesus and commit to daily paying that cost. I want you to hear this because this is real. Christians must weigh the cost of following Jesus and commit to daily paying that cost. And what will it cost? What is the impact on us? In short, we could say suffering. We have to develop a doctrine of suffering that sometimes suffering comes to the life of a believer. Not every day, not always. Sometimes it comes to the life of a believer. To understand what this is all about with with suffering in the life of a Christian is that if they are truly following Jesus up that discipleship pathway, we'll suffer. And when we do, to trust Jesus is still God, still in control, to pull close to him as God in prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. We pray for healing. We do. We we pray that, that the suffering will be short in people's lives and that it will go away. Those shepherding elders, they pray for people. But in the end, we also pray and we trust that Jesus will use all of our suffering for our good and his glory. And trust Jesus that he knows and he understands our suffering and that he is working in his plans or what we call his providence. Listen carefully to what the apostle Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what I just talked about, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Underline that. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been 
poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I think this topic of suffering is missing largely in the American church. Because when we say the name Jesus and we add to his name the title Savior, we mean he saved us. He purchased our freedom from sin and death on the cross, right? Now, let's be honest. If that's all it meant to believe in Jesus, who wouldn't want that deal? Who wouldn't want to sign up? Everybody be lining up. But when you add the second title, Lord, to the confession... Then it's a different story for most folks, isn't it? So much so that some evangelical Christians over the years have compromised the gospel a bit. In their opinion, they say that person doesn't follow Jesus as Lord. He is a carnal Christian. Now I'm going to give you a couple of false doctrine alerts. Beep, 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 false doctrine alert. Here it is. A carnal Christian is someone who accepts Jesus as Savior, but does not follow Jesus as Lord. This is a false doctrine. A carnal Christian is someone who accepts Jesus as Savior, but does not follow Jesus as Lord. Now listen carefully. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's just not. Receiving Jesus as Savior demands turning away from our sin and towards Christ Jesus. We call that repentance. Living in daily repentance of our old life and putting to death my own desires is what following Jesus up the discipleship pathway looks like. The rest of our lives, as we walk that discipleship pathway on our own and with others, requires our daily confession and repentance of sin, doesn't it? By the way, if you're inventing a new religion, that's not a great sales pitch, is it? You you don't want to go, hey, uh, repent of your sin uh, uh, every day. Don't live for yourself. You just wouldn't, wouldn't have many followers. When we say the title, Lord, we speak of Jesus, what we mean is that we must give up everything to follow him. The reason I give this warning about the systems and the checklists or the things we do for Jesus is that so many times preachers do this kind of, well, soft sell of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They treat the idea of following Jesus or the idea of him being our Lord as more like a smooth sales pitch, right? Like if you add a little bit of Jesus into your life, then you'll be happier, wealthier. You'll look really handsome. But that's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus says, there's a cost to following me. There's a cost of discipleship. So are we willing to pay the cost? That's what we're looking at. At its core, discipleship begins with recognizing that Jesus has total control over everything. Even though we don't see his total control or what we call his sovereignty. Because let's be honest, the world is heading to hell quickly and it's all coming apart at the seams. Do you feel it? I mean, something really has happened 
has shifted in the last five years, especially. We've seen this. And yet, we know it is, if Jesus is the Son of God, truly God himself, he is in control. God is in control. I want you to think about this. God must be in total control of everything or he's not God and we're really in trouble. Let me quote theologian R.C. Sproul here. He says, if there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Do you see what he's saying? For God to actually be God, he has to be in total control. Or whatever he's not in control of would at least have the ability to be more powerful than God because God can't control it. Does that make sense? Jesus has claimed to be equal with God the Father in his essence, his power, his sovereignty. We learned about that in John 5. Discipleship begins with understanding if Jesus really is the Son of God, then what he says goes. Or another way to say it, if Jesus truly is God, there is nothing else that could overrule his authority. Am I making sense? So what does that authority do for Jesus in our lives? Well, for three weeks, we've read the Great Commission that Jesus gives his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Let's read it one more time. Listen to it. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we focused on what it means to make disciples. And yes, that is the point of this, is to make disciples, right? But it's the first part that I want us to drill down on here in verse 18. So look down in your lap or at your phone there at verse 18 or up here when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Being a disciple and a disciple maker is based on this recognition right here that Jesus has all authority in the here and now and the sweet by and by in heaven. Didn't we learn in John 5 that Jesus is equal to God the Father in power and authority in spiritual stuff, physical life, and even over death? Didn't Jesus just teach us that he is the ultimate judge over all mankind. So certainly Jesus has the authority to call his own disciples, that'd be us, to obedience, to a command to live our life in a certain way. And that would include his most important and his final command to us to make disciples. To call us to obedience in making other disciples, that the charge given to us, that's our job. That's what we live for. Now, most of those hearing the Great Commission, I think they hear the great suggestion, don't you? 
But going back to our goal today of weighing the, the cost of following Jesus up this discipleship pathway, we need to be aware of something Jesus says to his disciples. This may mess you up, just warning you. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now hang on to this. Most people, when they hear this, freak out just a little bit when they hear it the first time. Are you freaking out a little bit? Is the cost high? How can Jesus say we should hate our own family? Hating someone's family would be a violation of the law of God. And since Jesus on many occasions tells his followers, I want you to follow the law, I want you to fulfill the law, he's not meaning that we should literally hate our family. So what is he saying here? Look at this. He's constructing a way for us to put our love for God and service to God in comparison to the things we love the most, our loved ones. The point Jesus is making here is a priority of love. Now watch this. So if we read it with that context, with what we see is that a believer's loyalty to Jesus must come before his loyalty to family or even their own lives. So let me just ask, what would you be prepared to do for your family if they are in danger? Well, you would give your life for them, wouldn't you? I know many of you are in the room, you give your life. <laughs> I've always found it incredibly interesting that a woman who is beautiful, kind, and gentle, who would never hurt a fly, a woman who doesn't even bend the grass when she walks on it. You mess with her children and you get the most terrifying mama bear ever. You know? You don't want, you don't want to mess with that. You'll get hurt. Don't get in between mama and her babies. Because she will hurt you with no thought of keeping herself safe. It's true, isn't it? And dads, this, this is what makes a warrior right here. When he will fight for his home and his family, there's nothing they wouldn't fight against. They'll pick up a sword. There's, there's a warrior in every man who would fight for his family. Moms and dads, you know this instinctively, don't you? You would run through hell for your children. Why? Because you love them. You would willingly give up your life for your family. Jesus is saying that kind of love should be seen as way low in comparison to how much you love Jesus. You with me now? Is that connecting to you now? I mean, talk about a cost of following Jesus. To put commitment to Jesus is higher than that of family so much so that our love for our family appears to be hate in comparison are you seeing the cost Jesus is laying out there he's going here's here's the cost in following me he says are you willing to pay 
Now, indeed, Jesus, in the very next verse, explains what the cost of discipleship actually looks like. He gets down to the bottom of the bill, if you will. Look at this, verse 27, Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, look, this is long before Jesus is actually crucified when he says this. But all his disciples and the people in the crowd listening would know instantly what he meant. Because everyone remembers their first crucifixion they see. Can you imagine a more horrible way to die than crucifixion? To carry your own cross through the streets of the city to the place of execution, often completely naked. It was the suffering before the crucifixion that was horrible as well. It was supposed to be a way of to force someone who was carrying their Roman cross to say, look, Rome was right in sentencing me. I'm so bad that I've got to walk through carrying my cross naked, almost beat bloody beyond recognition. So to bear one's cross was the statement that you would be willing to carry your own cross to death for following Jesus. Talk about a cost of discipleship. Are you willing to pay the cost? But then Jesus gives two quick parables to illustrate this point. Now, we'll come back to these sometime. It hurts me not to dive deep on these. I I want to, but I want you to get what these mean, at least on the surface level. So look first in verse 28, Luke 14. Jesus says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation... And is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and he was not able to finish. The first two, the first of these two parables shows that it isn't just a casual commitment Jesus is asking for. He's describing a careful planning of cost that is going to come out of your pocket to be a Christian. That what you begin with a commitment will be carried out all the way to the end. In other words, Jesus' followers must be sure they are willing to pay the full price of discipleship, not just a down payment. You tracking with what he's saying? But it's the second one that really speaks to me even more. Look at this one in verse 31. Luke 14. What king going... Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, listen to what he's saying. In this case, Jesus asks us to put ourselves on the sandal of a king who rules a country. There is an attacking army who is coming. You as the king realize from your recon team that the king is coming with a much superior army that will crush you. In other words, if you fight this coming king, he will win the battle. He will win the war. 
So what are your options as the king who is facing this far stronger king that is marching against you? You can simply face him on the battlefield and be destroyed and your country will be destroyed. Or you send a peace delegation to the invading king. You surrender, you save yourself and your country. But, 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 if you do that, you realize you won't be king anymore of your own country. The king with the superior army that you're surrendering to will be the new king. So what do you do? You send out a team with a white flag and say, I'd like to surrender, sir. To choose to fight against the king is certain death, certain destruction. But to surrender to the king, you'll have your life, but you won't be king anymore. Do you see what Jesus is saying with both of these parables? Here, write this down. The only option for Christ followers is total surrender to Jesus as ruler of our lives. The only option for Christ followers is total surrender to Jesus as ruler of our lives. Many in the world that claim to be Christ followers will tell you to avoid any chance of suffering in this life. In fact, they will say, if you do suffer, it's proof that you're not truly a Christian. You're not truly following Jesus because Jesus would never want you to suffer, they will tell you. Televangelists, internet TV preachers have been famous for saying things about being a Christian that are just simply not true. They're famous for one-liners. Live your best life now. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's like they're some kind of salesman for God if they can convince you And the hook they get people with is they hope to catch you is the promise of a good life that God will be able to provide you with if you know how to live a successful Christian life and they are happy to teach you how to be successful for just a small, well, gift. They show you how to pray to to let God know what he needs to do for you. They treat the Christian life and prayer so that God has to bless you with wealth and never let any suffering ever happen to you. We call this the prosperity gospel. It's kind of like if you pull the right levers for God, he has to be a puppet for you. Now, if you've been here very long, you have heard me say this, but it's worth reminding of you. Here's a good false doctrine alert. Ready? Ready? False doctrine alert, beep, beep, beep. The prosperity gospel equates Christian faith with good health, material, and financial success. It's false gospel. It's a false gospel, it's not true. And when we say something is a false gospel, what we mean is that it leads to hell, not heaven. The brand of Christianity These guys are selling, encourages you to focus on the benefits of following Christ, not the costs. This is particularly an American style doctrine of Christianity. By the way, not one that is any way supported by scripture. 
Oh, don't get me wrong. There is a huge benefit for following Christ. Amen. There's joy. There's peace. There's love. There's salvation. I've been made right with God. But what these prosperity guys do is to use the Bible in such a way, it's more like biblical origami. They got to take that page and bend it over and then flip and look at this. It's religious kind of sleight of hand. It's like going, these are not the droids you're looking for. It's religious sleight of hand and it works on millions of people simply because they don't know the Bible very well. That's why I want you to check out whatever I say or anyone says against scripture. Now, we don't have time to go here now, but just to know there's another false doctrine alert uh, that I could go up, shows up in some parts of the world. It's not very, uh, it's not here very often. We don't see it much here, but it's called the doctrine of suffering. Sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds like it's right on the surface, but a little bit, uh, it's a little bit like what we're talking about, but it's not, it's still false. It, It says that we can We can only suffer and never have any blessing of any wealth or joy anytime. We must be constantly poor, giving everything away, uh, and we can't ever be happy. But what Jesus tells his first disciples as he's leading them to spiritual maturity is exactly the opposite. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, flip back to chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples what they must do if they are going to truly follow him all the way to the end of this life into heaven. Pretty important words, right? Look at verse 23, Luke 9, first half of that verse. He's talking about Jesus. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now I have to point out that Jesus is not talking about earning your salvation. Our justification before God is a work of God alone. We're saved by God, amen? Amen. But our sanctification, that process of growing more like Jesus in this life as we walk that discipleship pathway, when Jesus says, come after me, he is inviting us up the mountain to follow him up that discipleship pathway, up that mountain to become his disciple, to grow. That means ultimately it's not another spiritually mature person that you're following, it's Jesus. To do that, to follow Jesus, it says it will cost you and it will cost you dearly. Salvation doesn't cost you. Jesus paid that. Amen? But to follow after Jesus requires that you deny yourself. That doesn't mean simply that you deny, well, certain aspects of yourself. But it means denying personal control of your own life. It means you give up your own plans for this life. Jesus models this exactly for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before he's... He's turned over by Judas to the authorities, betrayed. He says, if possible, God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It means saying goodbye to the life you had planned and hoped for and saying, God, I I want what you want for me. Because when we reply to Jesus' command to us, to disciple those around us. When we say, quote, no, Lord, 
to his command. This is a contradiction of terms. Saying no and Lord together cannot go together. Our answer has always has to be yes. Because let's be just brutally honest, shall we? If we are saying no to our Lord, he is not our Lord or our Savior. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? To be a disciple, Jesus tells us in the second half of verse 23, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. You you can read that same command by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anytime Jesus says, uh, talks about the cross, he's talking about dying to your own desires, dying to your own plans, your own wants. Just like publicly walking through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying your cross, totally naked, a condemned killer. Jesus is saying, walk through this life and follow Jesus no matter what the cost. And notice this, it says, taking up his cross daily, meaning every day, giving up your old desires, your old lives, treating them as dead and following Christ. Now, it means making a commitment daily that will lead you to being rejected by this world. Called a hater, any number of possible names. I heard this the other day, it's good. We need to develop a doctrine of the risk of getting fired. You go, well, if I say that, I get fired. Mm -hmm. You might. But ultimately, none of that or the suffering that comes with it will compare with hearing those words from our Lord's own lips. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're looking for. And it might even lead you to your death. It did for Jesus and all but one of his disciples. And they were, they were all martyred except for one, John. And, and he wasn't martyred, but it, it might have been easier if he was. He lived into his 90s. He was even boiled alive, severely burned. He, he was beaten. I, I'm just saying it's, it's suffering. Then there's that little phrase, follow me. Look at that. That means that we follow the teachings of Jesus found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Get this. In Jesus' time, when ra- a rabbi said, follow me to a potential disciple, that also meant that the disciple would be joining a company of other disciples that were following that rabbi. To be invited to follow Jesus is huge. It's monumental. It's life-changing. He says, you did not choose me. I chose you. But watch what Jesus says here about the one he asked to follow him and doesn't follow him. He says in verse 24, he says, for whoever would save his own life, his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Mm. You get what he's saying, don't you? He's saying, there is no life for you anywhere else. All of the other pathways that you desire, that you think you would like to follow, they all lead to destruction and hell 
Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you'll find real life. But it means you're going to have to give up your plans for your life. All of them. However, if you follow the desires of your own fallen heart and not Jesus, there's only death and eternal suffering in the end. So the first of the two big things, don't worry. The first of the two big things we need to come up to grips with as we begin to this discipleship pathway is the cost. What does it cost? Everything you had planned for your life, letting control of your life be in the hands of Jesus. That's the cost. The second big thing we need to see as we begin this journey, as we continue to ask all along is this, the cost in helping others and leading others along that pathway. This is a group deal. It's not an individual sport. We do this together. The Apostle Paul knew full well the cost of discipleship. In many of his letters, he speaks of the suffering for Jesus in his work of discipling the others. Not just his own discipleship, but the cost of leading others and serving them along the pathway. Listen to the, just a short account of the suffering of the cost he tells the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's some serious suffering. I was just reading that and I thought, I don't like to be cold or hungry. And I've not been either in a long time. No one ever followed harder or closer after Jesus than Apostle Paul, despite all the suffering he endured. Jesus said of Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. His life story bears those words out, doesn't it? And yet listen to how he describes this suffering in light of following Jesus. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, all the sufferings in this life that Paul tells us, he says, even though they're no small thing, he says, they're nothing to us. We view them in light of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and even more what he is doing 
through the actual suffering that we're enduring. Look at verse 17. The sufferings he mentions either uh, earlier become light and momentary afflictions. I love that. The word light in the original Greek that Paul writes that can be translated is insignificant. Less than a feather. Write this down. Suffering in this earthly life is insignificant and short when compared to the weight of glory he is preparing for believers in Christ Jesus. Suffering in this earthly life is insignificant and short when compared to the weight of glory he is preparing for believers in Christ Jesus. Someone say amen to that. Do you see the promise from Scripture here through Paul? Do you see it? And even more that those afflictions are actually being used by God to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. By the way, when you see the word weight there, it's not just talking about how heavy something is. It is talking about how substantial it is. Size, weight, meaningful, it means of ultimate worth. Here's what I want us to see and understand. The sufferings that we face as sold out believers in Christ Jesus, we shouldn't see those as an obstacle to our faith, but an opportunity that God has given us in his providence, in his plans to grow us into the Christian life he has designed for us all along. Nothing has surprised God. The reason we show the four peaks of discipleship pathway as steep and dangerous is that the way is difficult and you must walk it. Even though I'd like to put it in four wheel low and take a Jeep up. You've got to walk the discipleship pathway. There's nobody who's going to take you. And yet, God knows every step. He knows every tear that you will have. He knows the suffering. He knows even the missteps that we will take on that journey. He knows when we'll screw up. And he knows it before we ever take the first step. God has even prepared those difficulties we will face to grow us, to reveal his glory, and then how we respond to those those sufferings. If God is sovereign, and we know him to be from scripture, the suffering we face are not because he hates us but because he will use them to grow us and complete us in him. Amen? Amen. By the way, you remember that second parable we looked at earlier when Jesus gives us this picture of this king who finds out another king is coming with a much larger army that's going to crush him. You remember that? Here's one more thing I want you to understand about that parable. When we hear the gospel, Before we have repented and turned to Jesus as Savior and Lord, it is if we are that ruler of our own little kingdom, we rule our own lives. But the other king, oh, he's coming. He has an army that not only can, it will defeat us if we don't surrender to none other than Jesus himself. He is the invading king. 
You see, the gospel message is a loving thing because the king of the other army that is coming could come and destroy us and our kingdom. He is under no obligation to offer terms of peace to us. But the gospel message is an offer of peace to make peace with the God who created us. And not only to offer peace, but to actually adopt us as children. To make us part of his royal family. You see, when we come to Christ Jesus and we repent of our sins, it's a total surrender. What we find is our whole lives then become this constant surrender and repentance to the, to say to God, you are my king. You rule my life. I want what you want for my life. So as we continue in this series and we talk about discipleship of following Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord and as we follow this great commission to make our disciples, we're giving up our lives for that process. Total surrender. That's the cost of discipleship, of leading others. There's a reason why you see disciples raising their hands in worship. It's because raising your hands is the international symbol of surrender. It's a physical sign of what we're saying with our words as we sing. King Jesus is my Lord. I want you to know that I am totally surrendered to you. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.